Hello, and welcome to Seeing God. Today is a very special day because instead of Jan Gebert being our interviewer, she is the one being interviewed. Yes, today I interview my mom. She has a lot of things that she could talk about and that I would love to ask her about, but we're going to try to focus on just one story. We wanted to focus on this because God made it clear that this was His doing, and because my mom saw some specific characteristics of God more clearly through this event. It's about a very unexpected answer to prayer, and about God being so personal, and so good, and so very much in charge. It also features a lot of tubes for breathing, for eating, for what happens after eating, so I should probably note that there are a lot of descriptions of medical procedures and physical experiences that can get pretty unpleasant. Also, just a quick point of clarification. When my mom mentions in a couple of instances that she was unable to say anything, the reason for that is because she was intubated at that time, which means that there was, as many of you are familiar with this concept uh, at this point due to the coronavirus, but it means that there was a tube down her throat helping her breathe and inhibiting speech. This is a podcast that tells stories about what God is doing right now in the world. We focus on what is happening with, in, or through Christians. The Bible says in Psalm 107, verses 1 and 2, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Tell others He has redeemed you from your enemies. I'm your host, Emma Moore. Let's get started. So mom, we are going to talk about one day back in 2010, you were on a tiny little plane in a little, not even really a bed, I don't think, kind of like a cot strapped in, flying over the ocean, trying to breathe. Can you tell us what was going on? (laughs) That was probably one of the hardest days of my life. Well, um, it started two and a half weeks before that. It actually started before, before that, but I think we'll talk about that later. Um, Two and a half weeks before that, um, we were in Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, My husband, Harry, and I, your dad, and we were coming back from having uh, taught at a college in Moldova and we flew through Turkey and we stayed there for the weekend with some, we had a, some friends with us. So we were touring and um, it was a Sunday and I felt cold and chilled. And uh, I, after a few hours realized I really wasn't feeling well and I went back to our hotel. And so for uh, the next 12 hours or so, I had a raging fever and achy and headachey and, you know, I just thought, wow, you know, I didn't think it was a flu. I'd had a flu shot, but who knew, you know? So uh, they toured, Harry came back to the room. Eventually I didn't want to eat. He went out to eat with them. They came back. I really didn't feel that great. We went to bed and in the middle of the night I woke up and I felt like there was an elephant sitting on my chest. And I actually had this sense of impending doom. 
Um, and I thought, I don't think I'm having a heart attack. I was a pretty low risk person. I was 55 at the time. And anyway, I, I went to go to the bathroom and, uh, I realized I was extremely ill. So I woke Harry up and I said, I, I, I'm sick. I have to be seen by a doctor. And of course he is a doctor. And so we kind of had that little interchange, but we waited a few hours in the morning. Um, we looked up a place to go, went to a hospital that, uh, was, recommended. And there they said, uh, I had a pneumonia. I had pneumonia in both of my lungs. And uh, my white blood cell count was extremely low. And they said, well, we can treat you or we can admit you to the hospital. And I said, I want to be admitted to the hospital, which really kind of surprised Harry because we were supposed to leave in a day or two. And he thought, well, we'll just give you some antibiotics and you'll be fine, you know. And, uh, And so I got admitted to the hospital. Why did you want to be admitted to the hospital? Because I knew inside I was really, really sick. I knew I was really not okay. So when um, I got admitted and finally they did tests and stuff and I got into my bed and Harry's sitting there and I have oxygen on and God spoke to me and he said something I really wasn't expecting. (laughs) Um, And it was... One of those times that other people talk about and I had had before where it was, wasn't like I heard a voice, but it was this incredibly powerful impression that I knew he was speaking to me. And what he said is, this is your answer. Your answer to what? (laughs) Well, in the beginning of the year, that was in February. It was actually February 22nd. In the beginning of the year, being the analytical person that I am, I, uh, I had set out goals for myself. And one of those goals was to learn gratitude and self-control. And there were a lot of reasons I felt like I needed to learn it because being an analytical person, I stray into having a critical attitude rather than a helpful attitude at times and finding fault and trying to fix things. And so anyway, I really felt that I needed to learn that. And while we had been in Moldova, about five days prior to that day I went into the hospital, I had been doing what I do every day, and I'd been spending time sitting with God, talking to Him and praying and reading His Word, reading the Bible. And I realized I wasn't getting anywhere with learning that lesson. And so it dawned on me that um, maybe I should just ask Him. So I did, and I said, you know, I, I, I have no clue. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to learn gratitude and self-control. It's not working. So can you just show me? And so, um, so here I am in the hospital bed and he said, this is your answer. And um, I I knew I wasn't okay, but I did have a sense of, uh, here we go. You know, I've been like, this is, I, I, I actually turned to Harry and I said, God is doing something. I don't know what's going to happen, but he's doing something. And um, I want you to take pictures and I want you to keep a journal. And the next day I was in the ICU. Um, The doctors had rushed into the room and they said, your heart rate is over 200. Are you okay? Do you feel okay? And I didn't feel okay. So I ended up in the ICU. I was on oxygen and then it was on a mask and then it was... You know, I really, I, I couldn't breathe. So 
That was Monday. I was admitted by Friday. I was on a ventilator. And um, my heart rate was still over 200, between 150 and 200, and they couldn't get it under control. My blood pressure uh, had bottomed out. I was on vasopressors, they call them medicines to keep my, I was in shock. So they put me into a coma and paralyzed me and uh, took over my vital functions for me. And uh, so they had me like that for a week. And Harry was there with me the whole time. And by then our family had mobilized and other people from where we work had mobilized and sent people from other countries to come and be with Harry. They didn't even see me, but also you girls got together, our five daughters and their husbands, and said, we're going to send Anna, our oldest daughter, to be with be with dad, be with Harry. So they had come, and uh, after a week like that, about, um, I don't know, 10, 11 days into this journey, uh, they woke me up, and um, they said I was doing better, and uh, they took the tube out, uh, my, my breathing tube out, and it didn't go well. In fact, um, that day, I remember having this kind of, it was almost like a hallucination. And there was, it was a very awful scene in my head. And, uh, and I remember thinking, if I stay here five minutes longer, I will die. And uh, I I really couldn't breathe. And it turned out that I had uh, more than a liter of fluid on my lungs. And so they drained that off, and they put the tube back in. And uh, things spiraled downward from there. It was, um, I think, the next day, my CAT scan of my chest showed that it wasn't just pneumonia, that there were actually abscesses in every part of my lung. So the doctor came into Harry, and he said, let me show you this. We had amazing doctors there in Turkey. Incredible. They saved my life. And he, he showed him the CAT scan and he said, you know, this is necrotizing pneumonia. By that time, they knew it was a staph bacteria. And he said, uh, of course, I was on antibiotics and all kinds of drugs at the time. And he said, well, she has a 70% chance. And Harry's like, okay, well, okay, that's not great, but that's, that's good, 70%. And the doctor said, actually, no, she has a 70% chance of dying. Already people have been mobilized to pray for me. And he said, but if she's going to recover, this is a really long term. This is, this is going to take a long time. And we don't have the capability to give her what she needs here. So, so as soon as we can stabilize her, we need to get her out of here. And so people that we work with and uh, people all over, honestly, the world um, worked to get me on that little tiny plane. So there we were, Anna and Harry and I, on a medevac plane uh, with a doctor, a respiratory therapist, and a nurse and a pilot uh, on a 17-hour flight on a ventilator. That was wild, just getting to the plane. Um, I was in one ambulance, Harry and, and Anna were in another a taxi. At one point, the ambulance stopped um, on a highway, and they had told Harry that if if he didn't come through the airport gate with the ambulance, he wouldn't be able to make it on the plane. And so the ambulance stopped. The taxi drove went by, speeding by. 
he thought I had died and it was wild. But anyway, I got on the plane. They had to hold the plane because I got unstable. It was, it was a, it was a wild trip, but I made it, made it back to an ICU in America. Where did you end up back in the States after that? And how long had you already been in the hospital by the time you got back to the States? By then I had been two and a half weeks in the hospital and uh, we went to uh, Lehigh Valley Hospital in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where and there were reasons for choosing that they had had what I had was pretty is pretty rare condition doesn't happen very often. And um, so that hospital has, I don't remember the number, but an out, incredible number of ICU beds. We knew uh, a doctor there who knew the other doctors and they had had five patients like me in the previous year and they'd all survived. Wow. And, so we thought we had, and plus it was only about an hour and a half away from some of our children and some churches that we knew. So I ended up in the ICU there. Yeah. For a little while. Yeah. For uh, five and a half more weeks in that ICU. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was that ICU experience like? Well, it was better in that I had the possibility of more family coming. And so each of you girls came as you were able. Some of you were in college at the time. I don't know how you managed uh, during that time. You were, uh, for sure, Um, and living in different parts of the country. Uh, We had other friends who made long trips to come and visit us there. And Harry was there. We had a, the doctor and his family actually kept Harry and every, all of you for the time while I was in there in his home. And so there were, were, there was lots of support there and the staff there again were incredible, but it was awful. It was really awful. Um, The things that were hard was that there was this continual sense of suffocation. My, they were my oxygen levels, you know, they'd keep them up the best way they could, still on a ventilator with a tracheostomy. But that sense of suffocating was extremely anxiety provoking, obviously. <laughs> I had a fever. I had a fever for more than five weeks. Um, and that's exhausting. And the one thing that might be surprising is there was a lot of pain. I had ended up with three tubes going into my chest and that area rubs on very sensitive nerves that was painful um i had tubes i had like eight tubes in me i had pick lines and arterial lines i had a tube in my nose and then they put a tube you know through a feeding tube into my stomach at one point i had uh, a tube in my rectum because one of the other things was i had absolutely continual diarrhea and that you know that sounds minor it wasn't life-threatening but it was awful. And, and, and the worst part was they have to change you. And they did a good job of trying to protect my skin, but they have to roll you. And when you roll, you're on these tubes, you know, hurt. <laughs> and, and it was exhausting. So that was going on. It was nauseated, really horrible nausea. And they tried to help me with that. And I had fluid. I had gained 50% of my body weight in fluid just because of the medical condition I was in. So I couldn't even pick up my own leg. I couldn't move. I couldn't talk, couldn't breathe. And so for the control freak that I am, that was awful. I did develop some breakdown of my skin in spite of their best efforts. And honestly, the worst part was the fear. My prognosis was better than in Turkey, but um, it was now 30, 30, 30. And um, it was 30% chance that I would die. 30% chance that I would be alive, but uh, disabled, possibly on a ventilator for the rest of my life. 
in a 30% chance of recovery, of decent recovery. So that was better. Another thing was exhaustion. You know, when they, I had like just, Honestly, it was pus in my chest, inside my lungs, and they'd get all clogged up, and I really felt suffocating. And the respiratory therapist would come in, and he would, he or she would suction me, and I was grateful. I wanted to be suctioned, but the coughing was just gut wrenching, and it was exhausting. So I was exhausted. But worst of all were the nights because of staffing, or I don't know why they would give me a bath at night, and. Um, so here I was in this completely vulnerable, feverish condition, laying with nothing on me on the bed, and I would end up entirely wet, my head to toe, and uh, and I was freezing, and I, they'd roll you, so you already know the rolling was horrible, and you know then they changed the bed, and they were so loving and so careful, and some of the nurses would be like, I'm going to give you a spa treatment, and put lotion on and I wanted to say I'm freezing I don't I don't want lotion and just put the covers on me you know but I couldn't say anything and so anyway uh, that was hard but the worst part was then I was lying there at like 1 a.m awake and by myself and then they would turn the lights out to help you go to sleep so I'd be there by myself in this cubicle and uh finally fall asleep and about 4 30 I'd hear this beep 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 and it was the x-ray machine guy and he'd come in and he'd sit me up, ouch, you know, and he'd put this cold, hard plate behind me, and he would take an x-ray of my chest every morning at that hour of the morning, and then I was in pain and awake, and uh, sometimes, and they were very good about it, but sometimes I couldn't reach a call button, and so I was going to be there like that at least till 6.30, because they were trying to let me sleep, and I'm sure they were looking in on me, but it was really hard to be alone. And I would be afraid. And I didn't fear dying. I really didn't. I, what I was afraid of is that I couldn't endure. That I wouldn't have enough to just keep going. Those were the hard parts. What did you think would happen if you didn't keep going? Well, I guess I would die. <laughs> yeah. I think it was uh it was emotionally, spiritually and uh physically because of the physical I, I think the physical was probably the worst. That was what was coming at me and it was it was all I could do to get through the next moment. And um and I had to. I, I had to. I had to go through it. I had to endure it. There was no getting around it. And I didn't feel like, oh, I have to fight so I can stay alive. I didn't feel like that. It's just, I don't know how mentally to deal with this. I don't know. Yeah. I just don't know how to do this. And you didn't know how much longer you would have to. No, I didn't have a clue. And they were, they were predicting. They had said that it would. I'd probably be in the ICU for months. You know that it would be a minimum two more months from then, if not three or more. And then after that, it was going to be six months in a rehab facility that takes care of people on ventilators and tries to get you off them. It was a long, they predicted a really long journey. So what did you do when you were alone, awake, in pain, 
Well, God was really good. Um, you know, he had already told me that this was my answer to learning gratitude. And so, you know, he was so incredibly kind to have spoken to me at the beginning of the journey. And uh, he would frequently say to me, uh, especially during those night hours, you know, okay, Jan, this cubicle here is your obstacle course that I made for you so that you could learn gratitude, that you could build those gratitude muscles. That's what you asked me for. And I do want that for you. And so here it is. So, you know, there's this part of me that's like, oh, you know, okay, you know. Uh, and, and I was grateful. We had a huge list of things to be grateful for. You know, like people donated like $100,000 to pay for that flight. We didn't have flight insurance of that sort at the time. I do now. <laughs> but um, anyway, I mean, there were so many, so many good things, and I was grateful for that. But uh, honestly, what God would say was, I really want you, Jan, to thank me for the bad things. I want, I want you to thank me for all of these things that are really hard for you right in this minute. And it's interesting that I had asked him to learn self-control too, because I think he knew that it would take an inordinate amount of self-control to do that. And um, so I, w I did. And, and I really want to make clear to anybody who's listening is that I had not one shred of emotional gratitude in me. I did not feel grateful. It was a sheer act of, of, self-control of the will to say, okay, I'm going to thank you for these things, God. And so I remember particularly one night saying, thank you, Lord, for pain. Thank you for anxiety. Thank you that I feel. And I went through my list. And at that point, I had a tube in my rectum uh, to, to try to help with the diarrhea to control it. And Sorry for the visual picture, but um, it was extremely, that was, it was really painful. And it was, it was horrible. And um, if you're medical out there and you're listening, do not do that to a conscious patient. It was awful. But anyway, I, um, I, I thanked him for that. I had finished thanking God for that rectal tube. I think it was Palm Sunday. And um, about 6, between, I don't know, 6 a.m., 6.30, in walked Willie. And um, Willie was my favorite respiratory therapist. Willie just had this incredible way about him of calming me, you know, and reassuring me and you know before he sticks this tube down my throat it makes me cough my guts up but he would really do a good job and I was grateful and so I really liked Willie but there was nothing about him that made me think that he was a believer in Jesus Christ at that point so he walked in and he had a little bit of a funny look on his face and uh he kind of looked around and looked over his shoulder a little bit and uh, he pulled out a paper and he set it on that little tray that, you know, sits beside a hospital bed. And he stood at the foot of my bed and he said, uh, I want, I want to read this to you. And I actually felt kind of vulnerable and pretty, I was at my, a very vulnerable point emotionally. And I, 
I was afraid, actually. I didn't know what he was going to say, and I had no power to stop it. And I listened, and he was going on and on, reading something about animals, you know, and what happens to animals and descriptions of weird animals, you know, like goats, you know. And uh, I, I was like, what is he talking about? You know, in my mental fog. And, and I almost wanted to like stick my fingers in my ears and go, la, 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 you know, but I couldn't, I, you know, I couldn't really move well, you know? And so, so, but I, I listened and eventually I realized that Willie, my respiratory therapist was reading from the Bible to me. And, you know, other people came in, Harry read from the Bible, you know, you daughters read to me. I had scripture songs and different things, but Willie, my therapist, was reading to me. And, it, and he was reading from Job, I'm pretty sure it was somewhere 38, 39, chapter 38 or 39. And it was God speaking to Job in his, everybody knows, Job is like the picture, the epitome of suffering. And he was reminding Job that he's like in charge of absolutely everything in the world. And as it began to dawn on me, I realized that an hour or two before I was thanking God for the horrible things that were happening to me, even that rectal tube. And I, I begged him to take it out. And Willie came in and uh, he read this. And it was such an incredible reinforcement of what that, what that gratitude thing was doing in me. And I'll share that in a minute. But I do want to share that two hours later, a nurse came in and said, I don't care what the doctor ordered. I'm taking this tube out of you. <laughs> yes, that is so great. <laughs> you know, God is just so incredibly, he is so incredibly present. And he is so good. And that is actually, you know, as I processed, as Harry and I sat and processed what God was doing and had done during that time, then that gratitude thing, I realized, first of all, it's like this chiropractic treatment for my soul that gets my out-of-whack soul, my out-of-perspective soul in line with reality, according to God. And and that was when I would find peace. And and I think the mechanics of it are that it emphasized to me three things about God. And I ended up calling it, for memory's sake, it's like my GPS, my guide through suffering. And the first point in that G is that God is good. He is good, even when bad things happen. That doesn't change who God is. There's reasons for that. I'm not going to go into that, that bad things happen and bad things exist and suffering exists, but he actually is still good. And he's so much better than I, 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 I give him credit for. And if, if I walk through this and um, when I allow my reality to be in line with his, I see, I see that goodness and I experience that goodness. And that's what happened to me. But the P is that he's personal. It's not just that he's like this good force out there. He is this incredibly personal being. I mean, he, he spoke to me. He filled me 
with his presence and gave me understanding in my times of need and even when I didn't even know my need. So he's good and he's personal. And then what I've already said, the S part is that he's sovereign. He's totally in charge of this. He he actually said to me, this is my answer to your prayer, what you are going to go through. And it was. It was. And, you know, at that point, I didn't know what was going to happen. I could have died. Worse in my mind was I could have ended up on a ventilator for life. Our lives would have been completely changed. Or he could return me to some sort of normality. And and I didn't know. But in the middle of it, he said, thank me. So what did end up happening? Obviously, you're here talking to us. Yeah. How did you get from that hospital bed to here? Well, one thing that happened is uh, we asked pastors that were within a couple hour radius to come while within a short time of my being in America. Um, I, we asked them to come and to do what it says in James and to uh, pray over me. And um, so about 12 leaders, uh, men and women from uh, churches, friends that we knew uh, came and they allowed them into the ICU cubicle. They had to wait for a procedure to try to drain the abscesses and, uh, and they stood over me and they, they put their hands on me and they prayed that God would heal me. Was that more people than were normally allowed into your room? Yeah, I think I was only allowed two maybe, but they gave, they gave that special permission. So they had come. And so this is what God did. Um, so I wasn't in the ICU for, uh, from that point on, uh, I think I was in about 10 days more in the ICU wasn't months. And I went to that uh, rehab center, which was supposed to be uh, months and months, six months, they predicted. And um, eight days into it, they took my tube out and they said they were going to send me home the next day. And honestly, I was too afraid to go home. I thought I didn't feel like I was like, what if I can't breathe again? You know? (laughs) And so, so they kept me one more day. So I was 10 days in that uh, rehab center. And um, everybody was amazed. And so I went home and I wasn't okay. I was still on oxygen. Uh, I was terribly weak. I, you know, I, I, I needed to learn how to eat. I I still had a feeding tube in, you know, I needed to learn. Essentially I, I could walk, but like my muscles were a mess and, you know, there was just, I was a wreck. And so you had to be weaned off of pain medication. Oh, I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Well, I was in Turkey. I developed shingles. That, that, I forgot about that pain. Yeah. And so, just that horrible pain that lasted for a long time. I developed post-herpetic neuralgia. And so I ended up like with a pain doctor consult and on fentanyl patches and, um, you know, Lyrica and lidocaine patches. And I was on it and I kept trying to get off it and I couldn't. Retrospectively, I realized that too was God's grace because. I would have had horrible pain from all the damage to the lining of my lungs. And I think having, they wouldn't have given me pain medication for that. Having the pain medication for the post-herpetic neuralgia, I think allowed me to breathe without pain. 
And I think it actually hastened my recovery because I could do the deep breathing and the coughing and all that I needed to clear out everything. So here's the thing. They told me, don't expect to know at all where you're going to end up for at least a year. So basically you're grounded, you know, the work you do stops, you're going to expect a year. So uh, four months later, I was in a lot of hard work. I was cleared uh, to do anything and everything I had done before, including international travel. So God answered the prayer of those elders and, and here I am. Here you are. And just to be clear, you do still have some continuing lung problems, but they are being managed and you are able to do everything that you were doing, which is amazing. Yeah. I didn't start out with that, but I ended up and the lungs, my lungs are damaged and scarred, you know, all over, which ended up forming some minor, tiny, tiny areas of something called bronchiectasis, just damage to the tubes. Um, And then eventually I ended up with recurring lower respiratory pneumonias, essentially that, yeah, there was another Aravac from Italy and all that stuff, but that was nothing compared to the first one. And, um, and another hospitalization, but in, you know, it wasn't bad and I still carried on. And I ended, I ended up with this chronic infection uh, with something called non-tuberculous mycobacteria, which I'm in, I still have, and we're fighting it and it's chronic, but I have received excellent care and I am doing anything and everything I want. And we're really glad that you are. I remember, I remember seeing you for the first time in the hospital when uh, when you were in the ICU, that was hard. I don't think we were actually allowed to go in and see you. Claire and I were there as so we were sick. Um, so we weren't actually allowed to go in and we just saw you through the window and you, uh, you weren't looking too good. What did you think? Like, um, uh, well, you were, when we looked in, you didn't see us initially and you were trying to get some ice out of a cup. And you were really weak and it was hard for you. And that was hard for me to see that it was hard for you just to use a spoon and get some ice out of a cup. And it was, I had known that you were really bad, but it was different to see your mom struggling to do just a small task. Um, And then you looked up and you saw us and you smiled and you were so happy to see us. Um, But even then, even in that smile, you could see that you were just really tired. Um, so yeah, um, that, that image sticks with me from that time, but we were really glad that you, that God decided to keep you here with us longer. Um, and to let you tell about what you learned from him during that time. I know that I have learned from it. We just interviewed Anna. Um, so by the time your episode comes out, listeners will hear hers and learn how she also put into practice some of those things that you were learning in the hospital. Um, is there anything else just at the end of this that you want to say anything um, about God that you want listeners to particularly hold on to? Well, I think just that if you, knowing what I've said about the character of God, that he is this incredibly good intensely personal God who's all powerful and who loves everybody. He loves me and he loves you and he loves people that don't love him. 
in that he he he's there he invites all of us to come to him and he gave us Jesus Christ and I will unabashedly you know we we live in a world and I understand the perspective it sounds arrogant for anyone to say well I know how to know God I I don't I I I would regret if listeners hear what I'm saying that way what I want to say is that there's a way to know God and he invites all of us to know him he wants us to know him we're separated from him because of sin things that we do we are we are by nature spiritually separated from him and and if you're interested you know contact me and I'll tell you how what that means and how all that happened but but he does he made a way to fix that he made a way to restore and have a, a relationship with him and i want i want anybody that's listening to this to know that that's there to be had and and it doesn't mean that life is is all fixed and rosy what it means is that you can be connected to a God that gives you what you need, no matter what's going on. And he's good. Thanks mom. It's really good to hear your story again. Well, it, it would be wrong for me to end this. If I did not say thank you to you and to each of your sisters and their families and to my beloved husband, Harry for enjoying this with me and for overcoming your own fears to allow me to return to normal activity, which involves a lot of travel. So love you. Yeah. Thanks mama. We're releasing this episode on May 1st. On May 10th, my parents will be flying to Denver where my mom's specialist is located so that she can have a surgery to remove parts of her lungs. That's part of the management of her chronic lung issues that she described a bit at the end of the interview. To be honest, I'm tending towards anxiety about this trip because it would likely be a pretty bad scenario if my mom were to get COVID-19 on her trip out to Denver. We're trusting her doctor regarding the timing of the surgery, and doing this interview has been a reminder to me that God is completely in control of what happens to my mom, just like he was in charge of it in 2010, and that ultimately I can trust him. We'll keep you updated via social media regarding her surgery. We've also shared photos of my mom's illness in 2010 on our website and social media. You'll hear the links to those in just a moment. Lastly, I just want to say that if anyone listening to this is experiencing a period of intense suffering or loss, or is watching someone close to them go through this, we hope that you will be comforted and strengthened, and that you will be able to see God a bit more clearly in the path ahead of you. Psalm 107 verse 43 says about stories like this, those who are wise will take all this to heart. They will see in our history the faithful love of the Lord. If you have a story you'd like to share, or you know of someone who does, please go to our website at www.seeinggodpodcast.wordpress.com and click on submit a story. God is doing things all over in all of his people, and we want to know about as many stories as possible. So please do go to the website and submit a story. Also, we would love to hear your thoughts on this episode or the podcast in general. You can tweet us at GodSeeing 
or comment on our Instagram or Facebook pages at Seeing God Podcast. You can also email us at seeinggodpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Emma Moore. Our interviewer is Jan Gebert. Our engineer is George Haynes. And our show music is Siberia by Dmitry Lukyanov. Thanks for listening to this episode of Seeing God. <laughs>